0: lecture 1 of lectures on painting by edward armitage this librivox recording is in the public domain lecture 1 ancient costumes part 2 the dress of the women bore a greater resemblance to the greek but fashion insisted on having the arms and feet covered Whilst the women of Lydia and the maritime provinces indulged in the most coquettish and elegant Greek fashions, the ladies of the interior had quite a Persian way of dressing. A very long, close-fitting tunic or gown with tight sleeves, reaching to the wrist, with a girdle for married women and ungirt round the waist for young girls, seems to have been the usual costume. Like the men, they wore shoes and often the Phrygian cap if the men were fond of embroidered garments it may be guessed that the ladies were not behind in the matter of ornament many of their dresses were figured all over with spots stars and a kind of shawl pattern whilst the coiffures sometimes developed into sultana like turbans and were enriched with the most showy jewels jewelry of all kinds was indeed worn profusely by both sexes and it was a common saying in ancient greece when a man was effeminate or voluptuous that he ought to go to lydia and have his ears pierced before passing on to the dresses of imperial rome it will not be out of place to consider the important question of how to clothe the personages of the new testament i call this question an important one because the new testament is par excellence the great field for subjects of a high class and in the present era of research and investigation it cannot be a matter of indifference to the painter how the founder of christianity and his disciples were dressed the mosaic laws strictly forbade any representation of living organisms we have therefore nothing to guide us in our research as we have for egyptian assyrian and greek costume the dress of the jewish priests is tolerably minutely described in leviticus and is indeed almost identical with that worn at the present day but we have no authority whatever for the ordinary dress of the jews in the time of tiberius the old masters almost invariably adopted some shade of red and blue for the dress of christ and the same colors were also generally reserved for the robes of the virgin mary this choice of colors seems to have originated somewhere about the sixth century but it was not till much later that the church adopted these colors so exclusively that the artist had no option in the matter this traditional choice of colors became more and more binding as ages rolled on it has lasted even to the present day and few painters of religious subjects for church decoration would venture upon a departure from the time-honored red and blue the practice may have some advantages in the first place these colors when in combination have come to have a kind of sacred significance and from being reserved for the highest personages of the new testament they serve the same purpose that was formerly fulfilled by the nimbus they attract the eye to the principal figure in the composition again they are strong primary colors their juxtaposition in a picture is unusual and therefore likely to draw attention to the figure which is clothed in them the disadvantages are first the difficulty of harmonizing two such colors as red and blue a difficulty enormously increased when there are several figures in the composition and secondly the great improbability that our saviour or the virgin mary were ever so attired in the very early stages of christianity we never find this red and blue the saviour unless enthroned in glory is generally represented as the good shepherd and his garments are white or some shade of grey it may be argued that as he personates the good shepherd the artist, of course give him a shepherd's dress but that this dress may have been totally unlike the one he actually wore this is perfectly true and i am not recommending the blind adoption of this shepherd's tunic i merely mention these earliest representations of christ as an answer to those who argue for the antiquity of the red and blue if in the absence of precise information we allow ourselves to be guided by precedent it is only logical to go to the earliest precedent the truth is that there are two distinct methods of treating subjects from the new testament especially those where christ himself is introduced one is the traditional or medieval method and the other the naturalistic or as i prefer to call it the natural method the word naturalistic being generally applied to the grotesque style of the early german and dutch masters the first or traditional method seems to me more suitable for stained-glass windows and for church decorations generally than for easel pictures in decorative work no one expects to see the apostles and saints clad in the homely garments they certainly wore the figures are to a certain extent symbolical they represent the personages beatified and gorgeously coloured mantles with jewelled borders nimbi, and other mediaeval ornaments are not so much out of place even here i would depart from the traditional red and blue for the dress of christ white and gold are more suggestive of perfection and purity than strong colours and i cannot help thinking that the red tunic which tradition gives to st john is singularly inappropriate to his character i do not however wish to extend my remarks in this direction but rather to confine what i have to say about costumes to real and not to ideal dresses if there exists a danger of degrading the ancient jewish patriarchs by giving them the dress which they probably wore the danger becomes greatly intensified when we have to deal with the sacred personages of the new testament nevertheless i think that something might be done toward an approximation to truth without any irreverence in the first place i would discard all strong positive reds blues and purples for the dresses as inappropriate to wear garments of these bright hues was the prerogative of kings emperors and great generals and it is quite out of keeping with the spirit of the new testament to clothe its personages in these imperial colours white dull yellow brown and black are the colours to which i should principally adhere linen bleached and unbleached goat's hair and wool of all shades from creamy white to sooty black would be the materials clemens of alexandria says all dyed colours should be avoided in dress for these are far away from man's need and from truth and besides they give proof of evil in the inward disposition tertullian who wrote about two hundred years after christ has a whole chapter denouncing the iniquity of dyed colours now it is hardly conceivable that these early christian writers would have fulminated against red purple and blue garments if christ and his apostles had been in the habit of wearing them secondly i should endeavour while preserving the tunic and outer cloak or pallium to give to these garments something of an oriental appearance there is not much scope for doing this with the tunic rich men like joseph of arimathea or nicodemus would wear long tunics reaching to their ankles but it is very doubtful whether christ himself who denounces the scribes on account of their loving to go in long clothing would wear a garment of this description the women would have two tunics one over the other with short or long sleeves but never with the open sleeves of the greek women the under tunic which would in fact be the roman stola would reach to the feet the upper one would be shorter and embroidered or ornamented with colours the pallium or cloak both of the men and the women should have a fringe not a heavy gorgeous one like the assyrian kings but a thin light one in the twenty-second chapter of deuteronomy moses commands thou shalt make thee fringes upon the four quarters of thy vesture and in the book of numbers these fringes are again ordained when we consider how particular the jews were in observing their law we may assume as a fact that the cloak or outer garment of the new testament would have a fringe and this would at once give it a jewish or oriental character broad vertical stripes again either on the tunic or the cloak of a different colored wool to the garment itself would be unlike greek or roman fashions and would be perfectly allowable Thirdly, I should not hesitate, when the subject required it, about covering the heads of my figures. In most biblical pictures by the old masters, particularly of the Roman school, we find the figures bareheaded. There does not seem to be any special reason for this, and whatever may have been the practice in Italy, it certainly could not be the custom in Syria and Palestine to expose the head to the burning rays of the sun st peter and the other galilee fishermen may very likely have worn some kind of phrygian cap and we may be quite sure that all the personages of the new testament would have had some protection for the head probably a loose cloth bound round the head with a cord some writers have said that they merely threw a portion of the cloak over their heads this they very likely did on an emergency but when undertaking a journey or wandering about the country they must have had a proper head covering as to the shoes i should avoid both the elegant sandal of the greeks and the elaborate leggings and straps of the roman soldier the ordinary jew of the class to which the apostles belonged was not in the habit of wearing any foot covering at home but when on a journey he would protect the soles of his feet with leather or goatskin it is a mistake to suppose that garments made of coarse materials are incompatible with dignity any one who has seen the fishermen of the adriatic or the arabs of the desert knows the contrary it is not the material but the amplitude of the garment and the mode of wearing it which give grandeur and dignity we as artists have no means of making our personages speak all we can do is to take care that their gestures appearance and dress shall not be inconsistent with the words they are supposed to utter if we bear this in mind and at the same time honestly endeavour to clothe them according to their station in life we cannot be far wrong before leaving the subject of the new testament i should like to say a few words about the position the jews assumed at their meals i endeavored to get at the truth a year or two ago and the results of my investigations were these the rich jews like the rich romans reclined at their meals the poor either stood or sat of this there can be no doubt and it is only what might have been expected the rich would have a proper dining-hall fitted with a triclinium or couch the poor would dine in the same room in which they worked and would have no place for so bulky a piece of furniture as a broad couch as for the last supper it must be recollected that the room where it was eaten was an upper room and therefore very unlikely to be furnished with a triclinium and secondly it was more in keeping with christ's teaching to adopt the humble fashion of sitting rather than the luxurious one of reclining finally all the evangelists use the word sat and sitting which if correctly translated ought surely to settle the question on the whole therefore i think that leonardo andrea del sarto raffaella and all the old masters were right in giving the figures a sitting posture and that modern innovators are wrong in assuming that because roman patricians and their imitators in judea reclined at their meals our lord and his disciples would also adopt the same position the costume of the ancient romans under the kings was very like that of the greeks the resemblance was especially noticeable in military costume if therefore you have to paint any roman or sabine warrior of the time of the early kings you should take greek armor as your model rather than the late roman such as is seen in the release of the trajan column the romans however appear never to have worn the peculiar greek helmet which protected the face in these early times, there is no reason to suppose that the civil dress differed materially from that of the Greeks. Both sexes wore the tunic and pallium, or cloak. The Roman toga was a large semicircular pallium. The question as to the exact shape of the toga has never been settled, and most likely never will be. The older authorities say that it was rectilinear on one side and curvilinear on the other but more modern writers say it was of the shape of two segments of a circle joined together i am inclined to favour this latter opinion it would in this case be folded in two before being put on and the complicated and multitudinous folds would be easily accounted for it is doubtful when it was first worn but it certainly was in fashion during the king's and it would therefore be the proper clothing for numa pompilius the elder brutus tarquin and the other personages of that period the mode of wearing it in these ancient times was slightly different to the fashion which prevailed in the time of the caesars instead of being brought round the body under the right arm it was laid over the shoulder thus covering the whole right arm this must have been extremely inconvenient and although when sitting in judgment or taking part in some state ceremonials the ancient roman senators may have muffled themselves up in this way it is impossible to believe that they did not adopt some more comfortable way of draping themselves when actively employed we are told that in early times the toga was the only garment worn by the men but i suspect that this is a mistake i rather think that a short sleeveless tunic was always worn i shall refer to the toga again but i wish to proceed chronologically and to finish what i have to say about the costume of the earliest roman period whatever may have been the costume with the men the women certainly wore a long tunic and a shorter one underneath it is well to avoid giving them the clamus, as we have no evidence that they wore it but a cloak was certainly customary it was either of the toga semicircular make or cut square like the greek pallium care should be taken in dressing roman figures of this period to keep the costumes very simple and primitive the togas of the roman kings are said to have been striped with purple pliny mentions this and in a matter of this sort he is likely to have been correct silk was introduced into europe about this time but the material was far too costly to be generally worn we may suppose that a luxurious monarch like tarquinius superbus may have worn a tunic of oriental silk but luxury of this kind was not general as it became six hundred years later under the emperors the same stern sobriety of costume should be observed in painting subjects of the consulate scipio africanus regulus coriolanus and the other heroes of this period should be clothed with spartan plainness white or at any rate monochromatic cloaks and togas armor composed of iron bronze and leather would be the proper clothing during the consulate we now come to the imperial period and here i would remark that in the augustan age luxury had not reached that point of extravagance and bad taste which it acquired afterward the toga was still the ample woollen cloak of preceding ages and was worn over a simple short tunic i ought however to mention that in the time of augustus the toga began to be discarded in favor of more convenient garments it was however always worn on ceremonial or state occasions and great care was taken with the adjustment of the folds a roman gentleman would dress for a dinner at lucullus or a grand show at the Colosseum by putting on a clean white toga the toga pula was made of the wool of black sheep it was of a coarser texture than the white toga and was worn by mourners the toga picta was as its name implies embroidered with colors the toga praetexta had a purple or rather what we would call a lake colored border it was worn by young people and also by magistrates and other officials the purple and white striped toga already mentioned as having been worn by the old roman kings was also worn under the empire by the equites or mounted knights the emperor alone had the privilege of wearing a toga entirely of purple the female cloak of this period was the pala which is only another form of the word pallium. it differed only from the toga in being rectangular the long tunic worn over the inner one, the gown in short, of the Roman matrons, was called a stola. The lower part of it was crimped or plaited so as to form a kind of flounce. This explains the numerous minute folds we see about the feet and ankles in many of the portrait statues. I ought not to omit mentioning a very important article of female dress, viz. the strophium it was the same as the greek strophion and seems to have been of universal use it was a broad band supposed to have been made of kid leather and was wound round the waist to give support and to improve what dressmakers call the figure it was put on over the inner tunic and therefore corresponds exactly with the modern corset it does not appear that either the greek or roman ladies attached any value to a thin waist and this strophium was worn for comfort and not in compliance with the fashion the romans i am still speaking of the augustan age wore in time of war the sagum this was a cloak made of thick woollen material and fastened in front or on the shoulder with a brooch it was in fact identical with some forms of the greek chlamys. the paludamentum was the same kind of garment made of finer wool and used by the officers the sagum and paludamentum were not exclusively military as in time of war it was the custom for civilians to throw aside their togas and assume this warlike garb the lacerna was very commonly worn by the roman citizens either simply over the tunic or in cold weather over the togas as well it was very much the same kind as the sagum and worn in the same way it was almost always of a dark color the ponula was a circular cloak with a hole in the middle to put the head through it was slit open in front from the bottom about half-way up so as to give a little freedom to the arms it was made of thick cloth and generally had a hood it was a garment essentially for bad weather and must have greatly resembled our inverness capes or rather what is called a poncho the want of head-coverings among the higher classes of both the ancient greeks and romans has always struck me as being very singular the etruscans like the semi-oriental peoples of asia minor had a great variety of head-gear caps of all shapes more or less richly ornamented were common amongst the etruscans but the roman citizens at least the upper ten thousand seemed to have had nothing to protect the head from the sun's rays we all know that habit will do a great deal our blue-coat boys do not suffer by going about bareheaded, but i cannot help thinking that an elderly roman senator must occasionally have found the want of a hat on his way to the forum you will not often have to paint pictures of the ancient etruscans i need not therefore say much about their rich and varied dresses i may however mention that their wardrobe bore about the same relation to the roman costume that the asia minor dresses did to the greek there was an oriental and sometimes an egyptian tendency about the cut and ornamentation of their garments instead of the classical sandal of the romans they wore shoes and even boots made of some soft material in short they were more effeminate in their tastes the more wealthy an etruscan was the richer would be his garments he resembled in this respect many modern orientals whereas his neighbour of ancient rome would at least in the augustan age affect the greatest simplicity a roman patrician would as soon think of decking himself out in an embroidered and spangled tunic as an english gentleman would of assuming the plush and gorgeous livery of a belgravian footman luxury and effeminacy of dress began to creep into fashion in rome as early as the time of tiberius who probably because he did not wish to have any imitation of the finery of his own court promulgated very strict sumptuary laws as to dress these laws were enforced and even made more stringent by some of his successors but fashion was too strong even for roman emperors and under such sovereigns as Heliogabalus, but little was left of the ancient roman simplicity in one particular alone did the romans of the decadence contrast favourably with their neighbours the etruscans i mean in the matter of jewellery the roman noble even of the most degraded period never decked himself out with necklaces armlets and breast ornaments of gold like the etruscan the only jewelry he wore was a signet-ring the roman ladies were less sparing of ornament but even they did not load themselves with gold trinkets of every description after the oriental and etruscan fashion much of this roman jewelry was of very beautiful design and has been conscientiously imitated by castellani with regard to the fashion of wearing the hair and beard it is certain that up to the third century b c the romans wore their hair long and did not shave if therefore you have to paint any subject of the time of the kings it would be incorrect to represent your personages with cropped hair and clean-shaven as though they were romans of the later consulate and augustan age some sicilian barbers who came over to rome about the beginning of the third century b c introduced the custom of shaving and having the hair cut short and this custom continued without intermission until the time of hadrian or trajan when beards came into fashion again the sybarites of a later period than this used to oil their hair and sprinkle it with gold dust wigs were also worn by men as well as by women if the emperor of the time happened to have a crop of thick curly hair it was astonishing what a number of curly crops of hair suddenly appeared in rome perhaps we need not go as far back as ancient rome for phenomena of this kind it is needless for me to describe the stiff tasteless style of hairdressing which prevailed amongst the ladies of the later empire it was their uncouth artificial coiffures which were imitated in france and england about the beginning of the century it was this pseudo-classical style both of hairdressing and apparel which made our grandmothers and great-grandmothers such unlovable objects a real classical revival after the puff and powder of the preceding generation a return to the best greek and roman fashions would have been a great blessing both to society in general and to the arts especially but such classicism as prevailed under the first napoleon was hardly an improvement on the perruques and pigtails that preceded it the roman military dress is so well known from the bas-reliefs of the times of trajan hadrian and vespasian that i need not go into any details respecting it the only remark i would make is that the linen drawers we see indicated in the sculptures were not worn in the army before the wars of gaul and germany the dresses of the time of constantine and his successors are very little known to some artists this is rather an attraction as affording an opportunity of invention and costume which is denied to them in a better known period and it must be admitted that provided they keep to what was likely to have been worn no one can prove them to be wrong there are a few coins and medals in existence which give some idea of the appearance of an emperor or great personage but of the dress of the common people we know nothing for certain in conclusion i would remark that correctness in the matter of costume is far more necessary to an artist now than it was formerly in this age of archaeology and research we find, even on the stage, the most scrupulous fidelity observed, and it behooves us, as artists, not to lag behind. You will find, both in the Academy Library and at South Kensington, many excellent works on costume, and with such a mass of information within your reach, it will be unpardonable if you fall into the anachronisms and absurdities of our ancestors. End of Lecture 1, Part 2.